I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. As I was coming in, I was sipping on a beverage that I had in my hot and cold you know, thermal mm-hmm. cup. And it is something that uh, I think is sweeping the nation in its popularity. It's mm-hmm. kombucha. I'm unfamiliar with that. Kombucha is a fermented tea. Mm. And it so reminds me of the drink that my grandmother used to make on the, win- on the windowsill of her uh, Manhattan, this is Spanish Harlem, mm-hmm. windowsill, overlooking the back alley. I had no idea at the time what it was that she was doing. Mm-hmm. All I knew is that she had big gallon jugs those really thick glass oh, yeah. jugs that had the small opening at the top, the narrow neck. Mm-hmm. And she would put these big bottles filled with an amber-colored liquid out on the windowsill mm-hmm. and let it set there for several days. And over the course of those days, that liquid would start to bubble. Mm-hmm. And soon a foam would start coming out of the top. And at a certain point, she knew that whatever it was that she was making was done. And she would cool it down, and we'd have it refrigerated at home. It was a drink known as Mavi, Ah. which is a tropical fermented uh, beverage made with the bark of a tree. Really? I had no idea that my grandmother was doing that kind of thing. And Mavi <laughs> has remained one of my most favorite flavors and wonderful memories of, of uh, huh. living in Spanish Harlem mm-hmm. on, on those hot, hot summer days. Mm-hmm. This was the most thoroughly requ- uh, quenching drinks. Now, okay, Dave Corbett, name for me a few fermented things. Well, the only thing I can, <laughs> that comes to mind, of course, is uh, uh, bread. Bread, and right. And beer. Bread, beer, two yeah. bees that are really good. Yeah. But then we also brew teas and coffees, which okay. are also fermented, and chocolate, mm. yogurt. Okay. Miso, tempeh. Uh, there are many fermented um, foods from all around the world. What about sauerkraut? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, sauerkraut. There is a beet juice called kvass that's also, also mm. fermented. Okay. And all of these things have something in common in that they are made some version of them all around the world. Another thing that they have in common is that more and more people are becoming interested Mm. in fermenting foods. Mm -hmm. I've taken classes. There are now workshops all over the place and we are so honored to have with us this morning, a, a man who I believe is the American guru of fermentation, Sander Katz. Sander, good morning. Good morning. It's so good to be with you. Oh, I am so happy that you had the time to be with us this morning because you, uh, when we say fermentation in the United States, your name is the first I would suspect to come up 
because of the research that you've done and the workshops that you hold in fermenting foods. Sander, what's the genesis of this interest of yours? You've been doing it for over 20 years. How did you get started? Well, I mean, I would say that, um, you know, like you, like most people in most places of the world, I grew up with, with certain flavors of fermentation, although nobody um, uh, in my family was talking about fermentation uh, uh, at all or, or even um, uh, doing fermentation. But um, uh, 25 years ago, I moved from New York City, where I also grew up, um, to rural Tennessee, and um, among other changes in my life at that time, I started keeping a garden. And the first year that I was gardening, um, you know, I kind of realized for the first time that in a garden, all of the cabbage is ready at the same time, all of the radishes are ready at about the same time. And so um, when I was faced with this, um, you know, abundance of, of cabbage, I decided to investigate how to make sauerkraut. Um, you know, I, I literally looked in the joy of cooking, and I found out how to make sauerkraut, and I couldn't believe it was so simple. Um, uh, and I loved the results of it so much um, that it sort of sparked this um, interest in fermentation that has, um, you know, really uh, grown and diversified ever since. And I love how you introduced this, um, uh, talking about the, the mavi that your, that your grandmother was making. And, um, uh, you know, really, as soon as my first book, Wild Fermentation, was published, uh, I got this beautiful email from a woman in Puerto Rico telling me about mavi. I, I wasn't familiar mm. with it. And she actually sent me some bark. Um, and instructions on how to make my own mavi. Um, um, and uh, I've been making mavi ever since then. I mean, it's really such a refreshing beverage uh, uh, in the hot weather, especially, you know, here where I live in Tennessee. Um, you know, so it, it was really fun, fun to hear you talk about that. Well, that's, a, that's a, 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 a connection I didn't realize that we shared. Sander, you talked about sauerkraut, um, and you introduced that because you had this overabundance. You had you were hit with all of these vegetables maturing at the same time and there needed to be some way to preserve it. And so that that is one of the functions of fermentation. Um, sure. I mean, I mean, in, in, in many cases, fermentation is a strategy for preservation. So, you know, sauerkraut, kimchi, pickles are all examples of, um, you know, using sauerkraut to preserve vegetables or cheese is a strategy for using fermentation to preserve milk. Uh, salamis and other cured meats are, are using fermentation in order to uh, uh, preserve meat. Um, so preservation, uh, preservation is one of the important practical benefits of, of, of fermentation, but it's certainly not the only one. Um, you know, fermentation always has a practical benefit. You're preventing your food from decomposing into a disgusting mess and you're either making it uh, more stable for preservation, you're making it more easily digestible, uh, you're making it more delicious, um, uh, you're removing some kind of a toxic uh, uh, element from it. There's always a, a practical benefit uh, to fermentation. And fermentation is practiced everywhere in the world, as far as I can tell. And I guess that's where I was wondering. Certainly, Mavi was familiar to me because of the, the Puerto Rican connection uh, with my with my family. But there are similar things found worldwide. And, and one of the things I so enjoy about your book, Sander, and certainly you talked about Wild Fermentation, which was published in 2003. But I, I always look to also 
what I consider to be like the fermentation Bible right now, uh, the definitive tome, which is your Art of Fermentation, which came out, I believe, in 2012. Yeah. A thing that I enjoy are the stories that you bring into your books and into your workshops and explanations. The other thing I truly appreciate, however, is the intense research and documentation that you bring to this entire activity. Why your interest, why that interest in what it is that you're doing? Well, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I developed this sort of, you know, a, a personal interest in, in, in fermentation, um, you know, beginning around 1993, which is the year that I moved down here. Um, and, uh, you know, it was really just a personal obsession for the first decade. Um, uh, I started getting invited to teach sauerkraut making workshops locally. And the first time I taught a sauerkraut making workshop, which was in 1998, um, you know, I discovered that, um, you know, for many people, the, you know, the real um, obstacle to fermentation is fear, you mm-hmm. know, because we've all been raised uh, um, uh, in the context of what I would describe as the war on bacteria, uh, you know, and this idea that bacteria are just so dangerous and we need to avoid them and when we encounter them, we need to destroy them. Um, you know, many people imagine that fermentation is, uh, is potentially dangerous. Um, and that, you know, if they, do, if they do something that's not quite right, uh, uh, you know, maybe some uh, a dangerous bacteria is going to develop in their sauerkraut or whatever and potentially make someone sick or even kill them. Um, you know, so many people, you know, project this um, uh, generalized anxiety about bacteria onto the process of fermentation when, in fact, fermentation is, you know, really a, a, a strategy for food safety. And, and if you take the example of sauerkraut, there is no case history anywhere of illness or food poisoning from sauerkraut. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, they cannot find one single case, not only in the U.S., but anywhere in the world that we share data with, where there have been uh, uh, any cases of food poisoning from, uh, uh, from fermented vegetables. Um, and that's huge. I mean, we can't say that about raw vegetables. I mean, we read every year about outbreaks of, um, uh, you know, salmonella mm-hmm. or other forms of food poisoning from, you know, lettuce, tomatoes, spinach. I mean, clearly it's possible for raw vegetables to be contaminated with bacteria that, that can potentially make us sick. But if you take those vegetables and ferment them, the lactic acid bacteria that are indigenous to all plants will always dominate and they will destroy any kind of incidental contaminant that found its way onto the vegetables. So fermentation is really a strategy for safety, but just realizing that, that um, uh, you know, fear was a, was a factor for so many people, I, I really just decided to sort of, you know, investigate fermentation so that I could demystify it for people and, um, uh, you know, help make it easy for people to, you know, reclaim this important, uh, um, you know, process that's, you know, used in every part of the world, um, you know, to make food, you know, more stable, more delicious, uh, 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 safer, um, uh, more digestible, etc. And that's certainly a point that I've gathered from reading through your books. The process tends to be easy, the results safe, and your investment is might be your time, and of course the matter the uh, the food that you are fermenting. But it's a relatively inexpensive activity. It does not require a lot of highly technical equipment. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, it depends. It depends to some degree, you know, what you're fermenting and 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 where you're living. I mean, you know, if you want to make. Um, 
um, you know, if you want to make a camembert cheese in Wisconsin, you know, you're going to need to do some, um, um, uh, you know, sort of simulating of the environment of a cave in France, and that might take some, um, some, some more sophisticated equipment. But, um, you know, the vast majority of ferments are easy, and certainly in their, uh, you know, um, um, uh, in, in their original context, they're all, they're all incredibly easy. But, I mean, no one's invented any new ferments for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, uh, you know, all of these ferments are ancient. So, you know, our, our typical modern kitchens have, you know, far more, um, uh, you know, by way of, uh, you know, equipment and controls than, you know, sort of people's, uh, uh, you know, village kitchens have traditionally had. So, yeah, I mean, fermentation is not rocket science. It's easy, and people have been doing it for literally thousands of years. So perhaps you can give us a quick, quick primer or definition. Sander, what is fermentation? What activity is happening in fermentation? What are the, the microbes involved? Well, I mean, broadly speaking, fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. And, um, you know, in different ferments, different kinds of organisms uh, are involved. Different kinds of foods are host to different kinds of communities of, of, of microorganisms. So in sauerkraut uh, uh, or kimchi or any kind of fermented vegetables, it's primarily lactic acid bacteria, which are present on all plants, on all vegetables. Um, um, you know, if we um, if we were to look at beer, then that involves a, a different organism, uh, primarily yeast. Although one thing we have to understand about microorganisms is, you know, in our present day, you know, science has uh, sort of developed tools to be able to isolate specific kinds of microorganisms. But in any kind of traditional fermentation, there's no isolated microorganisms. Microorganisms exist in communities and function in communities. So, um, you know, any kind of traditional beer will certainly have lactic acid bacteria activity as well as yeast activity. Um, so, um, so, so, you know, most traditional ferments are what I would describe as mixed fermentations. In, in the realm of cheese, there's lots of different kinds of organisms involved, and that's part of what explains the, you know, great diversity of, you know, flavors and textures that, that we find in, in cheese, is the different kinds of, of microorganisms. So, you know, there's, there's lots of different kinds of organisms. You know, cer certain um, uh, uh, ferments involve lots of different kinds of organisms, like um, uh, uh, miso or soy sauce. Mm -hmm. Those involve, you know, bacteria, uh, uh, as well as uh, uh, various kinds of fungi and, and yeast. So, you know, those are, those are among the most complex uh, or, or microbially complex. But what people have to understand is that, um, you know, the practice of fermentation does not require knowledge about microorganisms. You know, nobody knew about microorganisms until Louis Pasteur's research 150 years ago. Um, and yet people have been working with fermentation for at least 10,000 years that, that we know of. Um, so, um, you know, what you need to, un what, what, uh, on a practical level, what fermentation amounts to is manipulations of environmental conditions, which we now understand has the effect of encouraging the growth of certain organisms and discouraging the growth of others. Um, but um, so you don't need to, you know, let's say, be able to identify micro, uh, um, um, lactic acid bacteria to make sauerkraut. You just have to understand that you want to get the vegetables submerged and that, you know, the, the submersion of the vegetables generally under their own juices or else under a, a brine that you add, um, you know, is the environmental condition that enables the lactic acid bacteria to dominate. 
if you leave a bowl of loosely shredded cabbage sitting, the lactic acid bacteria won't dominate. What will dominate are, are molds, and, and, and basically your cabbage would get engulfed by molds. So what's important for people to <clears throat> understand in the practice of fermentation is the conditions that they're trying to create. And they don't need to get too caught up with, um, you know, what kinds of organisms. You know, this is something that's a, sort of a, like a, um, you know, a, a techie perspective that I find very interesting, but it's not necessary for the, the, the practice of fermentation at all. And I found that to be one of the things that was most fun when I started fermenting. There I had a whole bunch of cabbage that I shredded up. Um, I added some salt to it in order to begin that process of the juices coming out of the cabbage. I rinsed it off, and then I forcefully pressed that cabbage into a mason jar, which I happened to have on hand. And I think the thing that was most um, telling in your books as well as others that I read, Sandor, was that notion that you just talked about, which was you're squeezing those juices or you're adding a brine to the thing that you're fermenting to make sure that it's submerged and remain submerged during the fermentation process. Why is that important? Well, because in the presence of oxygen, what is going to, what is going to flourish are, um, are, are, are mold spores that are always present on the vegetables. And, um, and in order to, to prevent them from growing, and enable the lactic acid bacteria to uh, uh, flourish, we get them submerged. And the submersion basically, you know, protects the vegetables from the free flow of oxygen. So, so that's what I'm generically describing as an environmental manipulation. Got it. So it's keeping whatever it is that you're fermenting under that layer of brine or water yeah. so that the good bacteria flourish and the bad molds don't. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and that's, all, that's only for fermenting vegetables. I mean, different ferments have different environmental uh, uh, requirements. So, for instance, you were talking about kombucha. If you want to make kombucha, kombucha needs oxygen. Mm -hmm. So you need to do it in an open vessel with a broad surface area because the surface where the interface with the air and the flow of oxygen is, is you know, where um, the bulk of the activity is occurring. Um, and so you need to make sure to sort of, you know, maintain the flow of, uh, of, of, of oxygen um, by not sealing it or, or, or um, uh, you know, obstructing the, the flow of oxygen to the kombucha. So, you know, for, for each different kind of ferment, it's important to, you know, understand what the um, um, environmental condition that is uh, uh, desirable Right. Uh, is so that you can create it. Yeah, I guess from my own experience, I, I think about those things. Um, I make kombucha, which takes me, the way that I like it, about six to seven days. I make yogurt. But, but it, probably, it probably varies a little bit um, depending on the temperature. Probably in right. you know, a hot summer weather, it's going a little bit faster than it does in, um, uh, in, in, in cooler times of the year. That's right. When I make yogurt, it usually takes eight to 12 hours to make that. Um, as and, again, and, that, and that depends on, you know, uh, 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 what kind of flavor you like in your yogurt. So, right. you know, most commercial yogurt that's available in the U.S. is actually fermented for a much shorter period of time because, in general, the consumer preference here is for a minimally sour yogurt. So it's commercial yogurt is typically fermented just long enough to set, 
but 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 um, no longer so that you minimize the sourness because you know as time passes more the lactic acid bacteria are are converting more lactose into lactic acid and um, you know if you have a problem digesting lactose then a long fermented yogurt is going to be more digestible for you because more of the lactose is going to be gone um, but that will translate into more lactic acid so it'll have a more pronounced sour flavor so um, you know one of the great things about fermenting things yourself is you know you can tailor them to the to the flavor you like um, and, and, and all the ferments exist along a spectrum, um, and, and they can be stronger if you let them go for more time, or they can be more mild if you do them for shorter periods of time. And, you know, this is true of kombucha, this is true of sauerkraut, um, um, you know, virtually any ferment, really. Mm. You know, you, you talked about that digestibility, and I'd like you to kind of talk about that nutritional benefit of fermented foods. It, it's not just about digestibility, doesn't it? Can it also free up certain nutrients that just not, are not there when they're not fermented? Well, sure. I mean, there's a lot of different, I mean, I, I mean, fermentation is so varied. I mean, it's not as if, um, you know, chocolate, kombucha, sauerkraut, um, coffee, and beer all have the same nutritional qualities, obviously. Um, but, but fermentation transforms foods in some very clear patterns of ways. And, you know, one way I would describe as pre-digestion, and this is the simple idea that nutrients get broken down into simpler, generally more easily accessible forms over the course of the fermentation. So, you know, one example of that might be um, the protein in soybeans gets broken down into more accessible forms, amino acids, the building blocks of proteins as a result of fermentation. Um, another benefit of fermentation is what I would describe as detoxification and certain uh, uh, toxic compounds found in foods, which could be dramatic like cyanide in cassava, mm-hmm. or they could be milder like um, um, oxalic acid in, 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 in certain vegetables. Um, but, but various toxins in foods get broken down by essentially the same process of, of, of pre-digestion. Then additional nutrients are generated, uh, including B vitamins, including K vitamins, um, including all kinds of uh, micronutrients that are that are really just beginning to be uh, investigated. Um, minerals uh, uh, often get liberated from um, you know chemical bonds that that would otherwise make them in, uh, inaccessible to us in in, in certain foods. Um, um, so there's this idea of like generating additional nutrients, but then there's the bacteria themselves. Um, and you know what we now understand is that you know bacteria are the building block of all life, and um, you know each of us is host to something around a trillion bacteria, and uh, you know these are not um, uh, freeloaders or parasites. They give us our functionality. They enable us to effectively digest food, to assimilate nutrients. Uh, what we call our immune system is the work of bacteria. We're learning that our our you know the serotonin and other chemicals that determine our brain function and how we think and how we feel are regulated by bacteria in our intestines. Mm-hmm. Um, Um, You know, and yet we all have contact with um, chlorine, antibiotic drugs, antibacterial cleansing products. And so, um, you know, we're facing diminished uh, biodiversity in our bodies. Um, And so, you know, I would say in our present moment, you know, the greatest potential benefit of fermented foods is the bacteria themselves. Um, You know, a, a, a can of sauerkraut in the supermarket does not have living bacteria. Anything that's been cooked or heat process, the bacteria are destroyed. But any kind of fermented food that is um, 
that is eaten or drunk in its raw state, not heated, not cooked. Um, uh, you know, you're, you're ingesting bacteria, and those bacteria can help to restore biodiversity and uh, potentially improve our health in all kinds of ways. So I would say, um, you know, um, um, in a nutshell, those are the, you know, major benefits of eating fermented foods and drinking fermented beverages. You know, Sandra, your, your comments just now just always kind of make me think how much work we have to do to actually get back to real food in the United States because so much of that has really disappeared from the, the marketplace. Fortunately, well, I mean, I, 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 I hear you and I agree with you, but also, you know, as you said at the beginning, like there is a remarkable simplicity to it. You mm-hmm. know, it's not, it's not that these, you know, processes that are so important, um, you know, are, are hard in any way. Like that you take the humblest of ingredients, and using, you know, very simple, ancient, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, even te- I was going to use the word technologies, but that's the wrong word. But, um, 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 you know, just the, these, these ancient um, um, uh, processes, practices, um, you know, we can really, um, uh, you know, elevate our food in, in all kinds of ways. And I think that it's really important that people become more connected to their food, you know, whether it's growing food, whether it's cooking food whether it's, you know, processing foods in ways like, like, like fermentation. But I think it, it's, it's, it's really critically important that we, um, uh, you know, change our relationship to food and, um, you know, just, just become more directly involved in it. Sander, you're doing your part in, in many ways, not only through talks like this on the radio and your books, but you conduct workshops all over the world and you continue to do research are you finding that there is really a growing interest a growing demand to learn about these skills sure i mean it is it is my impression that um that um there's huge interest in in fermentation and really since the time when wild fermentation first came out uh it's been it's been clear to me that that there's huge interest in uh in, in in fermentation and um uh, you know, um, uh, in about a week and a half, I'll be coming up to uh, to Wisconsin and 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 doing doing some workshops up there. But you know, I spend a lot of my time traveling and, and teaching, and really, like everywhere that I go, I find a, a huge interest in this. Um, uh, in May and June, uh, I was uh, uh, doing workshops in Europe, and I just found, um, you know, everywhere I went uh, uh, in Europe, just just huge, huge interest in this. Um, you know, from some of the places that have, you know, really, really um, uh, import, uh, important living fermentation traditions, like, for instance, in, in Poland, there's huge interest because there's concern that the younger generation, uh, uh, you know, has not, um, you know, embraced the, 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 the traditional practices, um, you know, like in so many uh, 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 other places than in places that just don't have such uh, 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 strong traditions of, uh, or such broad traditions of fermentation, like for instance in, uh, 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 in England, um, you know, there's just a growing recognition of how, um, uh, you know, nutritionally important this is, and people want to, you know, learn how to ferment and how to incorporate fermented foods into their diet. Sander, uh, in order to find out about your upcoming events and about your books and, and your travels, where can people go? Um, I have a website, which is wildfermentation.com, um, and um, you can certainly find out about my books and my workshops uh, 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 there. Um, 
um, yeah, that, that's the best place to go is my is my website, wildfermentation.com. All right. And as we wrap up here, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, as people have listened to this, this uh, conversation with you, I'm sure they'll be going to your website. Uh, what word would you like to leave them with if they've never fermented any foods? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, sauerkraut is just, it's where I began, and I think it's the perfect way to begin a fermentation practice. Um, you know, you don't need any starter cultures. You don't need any uh, special equipment. You can do it in a jar that's already in your kitchen. All you do is you chop up cabbage, you lightly salt it, get in there with your hands, squeeze it, and the squeezing basically uh, uh, breaks down cell walls, releases some juice. Once it's juicy, you stuff it in the jar, get it submerged, and then you wait. Um, and so I, my word is sauerkraut. Try it. Um, and you can really do this process with, with, with pretty much any vegetable you, you like or have an abundance of. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.